Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Today, our mission is to better understand the jobs recovery, given many conflicting signals coming from many federal and state government sources. As we've noted in prior podcasts, we must look beyond the headline press releases to understand that our COVID recovery is leaving many unemployed behind as millions have not only left the workforce, could not find full-time jobs, and they are not included at all when calculating the popular monthly unemployment rate. Recent data, sourced importantly by Bloomberg and J.P. Morgan's economists, show two more threats to a successful recovery from the COVID-related business bankruptcies, shutdowns, and downsizing. First of all, the loss of customer-facing jobs in industries including restaurant, airlines, hotels, conference centers, retailing, and so forth, is impacted by the substantial expansion of unemployment benefits and stimulus programs. These job opportunities are impacted in a couple of ways, and we'll get into that. Secondly, the challenges during COVID of graduates of all levels finding entry-level jobs as industries have implemented employment freezes, downsizing moves, and have avoided making new investments that create jobs. These factors are also complicated by the large increase in unemployment benefits and stimulus payments. Let's start with the existing workforce issues. In the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, there are millions and millions of former workers who have lost their jobs and are unable to return, as their job may not even exist today. Their skills atrophy, and they become increasingly unemployable. With every day, they are unemployed. Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell this past week noted over 9 million Americans remain out of work despite the beginnings of a general economic recovery. And we're going to show you that the number is actually far more than 9 million Americans. We can't forget that the U.S. workforce in 2019 numbered 156 million. And we're going to show you today just how far off of that number we are, even though we're showing better federal releases of unemployment figures. At the same time, Uh, J.P. Morgan, Bloomberg, and many others have noted that when one looks at the recent, they call it JOLTS data, J-O-L-T-S, and I'm putting a link in the podcast SoundCloud page, so you can go to that yourself if you like. The JOLTS data actually shows a near record number of job openings. So we're seeing a kind of a counter trend to the unemployment, but we need to understand more about that, which we're going to get into shortly. At one point, there are large numbers, millions of people being eliminated from the workforce and not counted when the unemployment rate is being calculated. And at the same time, there are many jobs that are going unfilled. And some of these by people who have left those jobs, finding replacements is an issue in certain job categories. So we have a real, what I call a bifurcation of the job market. Let's talk about the labor force participation rate. After the 08-09 Great Recession, the labor force participation rate was about 65%. Immediately before the fallout of COVID, it had fallen to 63.3%. And last month, 
it was recorded at 61.5%. So the number of people actually participating in the workforce continues to drop. And that's after a recovery from the low earlier in COVID. The low was 60.2%. And again, as I mentioned, March was 61.5%. So more and more people are leaving the workforce. We have to go back to 1976 to find this level. And as some of you may recall, back in 1976, we still had a number of spouses who were at home caring for children, caring for parents, including homemakers. And this was at the beginning, not the beginning, but toward the beginning of most households having 1.8 to 2 wage earners per household. Back in the 60s and early 70s, it was more like 1.2. So we're sort of way back where we were 45 years ago. But the reasons are different. A significant number of working-age men have also left the labor force. In 1954, if we really go back a while, 98% of the men aged 25 to 54 were in the labor force. By 2017, that had fallen to 88%. And this is one of the lowest rates of prime-age men in the workforce of all developing countries. The drop-off is worse among men without a college degree. The percentage of people with at least a college degree rose from 33% after World War II to 84% in the year 2000. With less demand for non-degree men, the wages are also much lower. Wages fell by 15% for those without a degree between 1973 and 2016. Many manufacturing jobs that these men relied on have either been outsourced to other countries or replaced by technology. Let's talk about a large component of those who are not in the workforce. There are actually just over 100 million Americans who are out of the labor force. And the quick answer is, well, a lot of people have retired. But the real answer is a little bit different. Approximately 50 million of those 100 million have retired. And how do we know that? because we know 50 million people receive Social Security benefits. There may be some people who are receiving special benefits, but the vast majority are retirement benefits. Officially, it's recognized in recent surveys that about 7 million of those out of the workforce want a job, but about 93 million to 94 million don't want a job. And let's peel that onion a little bit. We know that about 50 million are receiving retirement benefits out of the 90, let's say 94 million, that leaves 44 million. Of the 44 million out of the workforce, we know about 20 million are receiving enhanced employment benefits. Some of these from state programs and some of these from federal programs that actually have picked up where state programs have left off. So, okay, that leaves about 20 million who are not retired in terms of receiving Social Security benefits, and they're not getting unemployment benefits. So this remaining group of 20 to 25 million likely include spouses leaving to care for their school-aged children, primarily women, and those who gave up finding a job, whether they're women or men. And that's after an official jobs recovery over the past several months. So after that, we still have serious unemployment problems, and we're generally not recognizing those the way that the unemployment rate is reported. That's why I'm recognizing them now, and I'm calling them to your attention. I just want us all to think about all of those we're leaving behind and how a low or less and less lowering unemployment rate is not telling us that the economy is necessarily healthy and that there are adequate jobs and there's adequate income.
just the opposite. While we recognize the unemployment pain for many, we also have to recognize the issues of those employers who are hiring. On April 1st, the National Federation of Independent Business reported that in March, a record high percentage of small businesses surveyed said they had jobs they could not fill. 42% said they had jobs they could not fill versus an average since 1974 of only 22%. 92% of the respondents of the survey I just mentioned said they had few or no qualified applicants for job openings in the prior three months. And this is the most negative result of the survey since it started back in 1993. We know that the American Rescue Plan that Congress approved last month provides an extra $300 a week in jobless benefits through September. We have received survey data that there are a number of people who have replied that they're glad to take the $300 to $400 a week and stay home rather than go out and work and earn $500 a week. In some cases, by leaving home and getting an extra amount of money to be working actually adds to the household expenses, whether it be gasoline, whether it be parking fees. So this is not so easy to figure out. But there are a lot of people we know who prefer to be receiving unemployment benefits and be out of the labor force rather than go out and work to earn what might be a relatively small about more, picking up additional expenses of working. And this is particularly true in the restaurant industry. And uh, Bloomberg's analyst Peter Saleh covers that industry, and these are some of his conclusions. There are others who are unemployed and out of the workforce convinced they will never get hired, so they don't even try. As Bloomberg has noted, some would-be workers may have lost their gumption, and some of them have said that they're worried during this time that's gone by that it's going to be very hard to come back full-time. It's asking people to jump back in with a high energy level into the job market with an energy level they haven't had in a while. This is also during a period where 53% of those in younger age group, ages 18 to 29, who are working remotely because of COVID, said it was difficult for them to feel motivated to perform their duties. Only 20% of those 50 and older said the same. Let me repeat that. 53% of those in the younger age group have said it's difficult for them to feel motivated to perform their duties, and that contrasts to only 20% of those age 50 and older. So we have a historic crisis, one where the government is actively subsidizing the minimum wage sedentary lifestyle and preventing those workers from getting real jobs, providing additional discouragement from getting real jobs and developing real skills they need to make real money. We see a lot of data supporting what was just mentioned, just covered. And uh, another worrisome part of the data is the U.S. weekly initial unemployment claims that are reported every Thursday morning. And we now seem to be on a plateau that has gone on since October of last year, where the new unemployment claims, the initial unemployment claims, are stubbornly sticking over 700,000 a week. In any kind of a recovery, that's that's a worrisome issue because if we go back pre-COVID, these unemployment claims, the initial unemployment claims were more in the area of about uh, 200,000 or so. So we're over 700,000 every single week, new claims for unemployment. 
Keep in mind when someone files for benefits, they are claiming they are eligible for unemployment insurance, but it's the state labor agencies who actually determine whether the claimants are truly eligible. The number of first benefits paid in February was reported, as one can expect, it was quite surprising. And I did have to go back to February to get some of this data, but it is likely even more true today. It was found that historically about 45% of initial claims have resulted in a first payment of benefits. That is to say that of all the claims for unemployment, slightly less than half were validated by the states for payments. And if we move to the most recent data, this was February data, if we move to absolutely the most recent data reported days ago, that percentage, instead of being close to half, is close to one quarter. So fewer than 25% of initial claims have generated a first payment of benefits. Why? One reason, according to J.P. Morgan, is that the $300 weekly bonus payments are encouraging more people to give filing, give it a shot. The payoff from the successful claim is significantly greater than before the pandemic. The new configuration of the level of initial claims relative to other labor market indicators may be with us for quite a while because these weekly $300 benefit increases continue through early September, and that could continue to attract a larger-than-usual number of filers. In short, expect a far higher number of initial claimants, even if the number of claim recipients turns out to be far lower. That's just to help you understand the data. So, What I'm not saying is over 700,000 per week are accepted as truly unemployment claims, and it's still far higher than pre-pandemic, but maybe that is mitigated a, a bit. Let's go back and recall how jobs are created. No organization, even the nonprofits, much less a company striving to survive and create necessary profits or cash flow for their owners or their stakeholders, stockholders, will intentionally hire more staff than necessary. Actually, as you know, organizations are constantly figuring out how to accomplish all the tasks they need to with fewer workers. Every worker or staff member has a base salary, which you have to add benefits of 40 to 50 percent of that base salary in addition. And then you add to that expenses of the workspace and equipment. One too many employees can easily cost an additional $100,000 to $200,000 a year. Historically, small businesses have accounted for 60 to 70% of all new jobs created across the country. It's not the Amazons, not the Apples, the Disneys, or Microsofts. For example, with respect to Amazon, Amazon has created 1.3 million employees, but has eliminated far more than it has created through the closure of retail stores. I'm not blaming Amazon totally. I'm just saying that you have to consider quite possibly more than 2 million jobs that have been eliminated by retail layoffs and store closures as Amazon has been hiring. Amazon has also, uh, we know, taken away jobs from Office Depot, from Staples, from Best Buy, JCPenney, and many, many smaller retailers altogether. So none of this should be a surprise. The big question is how much does all of the new debt that is responding to the crisis that we are in, the COVID-related crisis. How much does all the new debt help create new jobs? And the answer is not much. If I were pessimistic, I would say not at all, but let me say not much. And this should not be a surprise for those who have worked for small businesses or have your small businesses 
or plan to operate a small business or even executives of the large businesses, everyone pretty much knows that there are not new investments made in a new location for a store, new equipment, a new warehouse. There are not new investments made unless there is a business plan that at least demonstrates the likelihood of a return on that investment. So interest rates can go down, 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 zero. They can go below zero. They could stay at zero. But if the people who are deciding, and there are many millions of these people as small businesses, are deciding whether they should invest in expansion or not, if they are not seeing that they can invest with a return, they're not going to do it. And that's the mode we're in right now. The companies don't need to reinvest because they're satisfying the demand by their existing facilities and equipment, or they have serious concerns about what the overall consumer marketplace will look like with post-COVID over the next several years. But in any event, the new investments we know are not being made. The money that is flowing into the marketplace is coming in the form of entitlements in terms of unemployment enhancement, There has not been any significant money coming in of the trillions that have been spent to actually add value to the assets like public assets of bridges, roads, and so forth. This is promised, but it hasn't happened. So trillions have been pumped into the economy, but it has not raised the potential of a return on new investment by those who would be required to make investments to create jobs. So with all the trillions of new debt added in the past 10 years, the past five years, the past two years, this year, and to be next year, millions so far have left the workforce. They're unable to find full-time jobs. Small business failures the past year or two are estimated at close to 20% across the country of all small businesses. And new jobs created by the big tech companies are nowhere near those required to keep the labor force in place. It is an economic truism, and we're proving it week to week. More debt doesn't lead to more robust economic growth. It doesn't lead to prosperity, just the opposite. And we can look at history. Since 1980, the overall increase in debt has surged to levels that currently take over the entirety of economic growth. As the government, which owes close to $28 trillion, is refinancing every year $8 trillion of debt, and as those public entities are counting upon the Federal Reserve to backstop their new debt and refinancing debt, we see very little debt that has gone to uh, producing new jobs, new investments, job-related investments. So the economic growth rates are now at the lowest levels on record. The change in debt continues to divert more tax dollars away from productive investments. And as interest rates go up, and they've gone up about 1% in the past eight or nine months, as they go up, more and more debt will be required to roll over the existing debt and pay the interest expense, actually. Because keep in mind, the government has no money. The government is totally dependent on how much debt they can fund to pay for these programs. And interest expense has been low because debt has been high, but the Federal Reserve has kept the interest rates close to zero. Well, that's changing. During this podcast period, we've commented on that, and it is absolutely changing. You can see it in the marketplace. As a result, We look at such things as what would be the economic growth of the United States if we did not have all this debt. And we find, and and I've found, and I'm willing to defend myself, 
but we have found that virtually all the gross national product increase, all the so-called economic indicators that have gone up are a result of price increases, a result of the money supply. They're not a result of real production increases of goods and services. I know that's a big statement, but I'd like to leave that with you. We appear to be on a growth track now that's the lowest since uh, World War II. And since World War II, we had a growth trend of about 3.2% of real growth up until about 2005, 2006. That changed with the 08, 09 Great Recession. We've never recovered even on uh, to the prior growth rate trend. And we are right now on, on very much the low end, the lowest growth rate that we've experienced. And in my view, if one takes out the price increases, the real price increases, not the ones that are reported and massaged by the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the various other reporting agencies, uh, the U.S. is not showing real growth at all. And that's been a part of prior podcasts as well. So we are in a classic, what the economists would call a liquidity trap. And rather than take more time, I'll ask you to look up the liquidity trap. And as interest rates stay low and money continues to be hoarded rather than invested, or money is used to pay off debt in some cases, it's not creating investment in new jobs. So between now and the next podcast, I'll ask you to spend a few minutes imagining a couple of scenarios. First of all, what would happen if the Fed slowed its money creation and our federal government slows or stops sending stimulus money to tens of millions of families. And I'll also ask you to imagine another scenario. Imagine the outcome if the Fed continues to print vast amounts of dollars to buy the increasing government debt, and if Congress keeps borrowing more and more to send stimulus monies. And I'll leave you with a final thought that almost everybody could identify with. Imagine you're playing a Monopoly game. I know we're not, but just imagine for a minute you're playing Monopoly. And at a point, the bank decides to give everyone, all the players, an additional amount of money that is equal to what they started with before they invested, before they lost monies. Imagine that a a windfall amount is paid in the Monopoly game to every player with the original amount of money just being given out to them. Do you think that the prices of Park Place and Boardwalk and Marvin Gardens and others would be the same? Do you think real estate prices would stay the same if everyone got an infusion of cash? So I'll leave you with that thought for now and have a safe week. Be careful and be cautious with your investments. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.